Hear the word of God from Ephesians 5 and 6. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. Ephesians 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruit fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen.
Thank you, Erica, for reading that long passage. Um, again, when I preach, I sometimes have to do the whole passage because I want everyone to get the essence of what Paul was talking about um, so you, you can see the big picture of the passage. And So let me get this guy in my pocket. Well, good morning. I'm Danny, one of the pastors here at Waypoint Church, and we're in a summer sermon series, a uh, little alliteration for you, on uh, going through Paul's letters Paul's letter to the Ephesians, a book in the New Testament of the Bible. But before I start, I want to start today's sermon with a story. About 10 years ago, my family and I had been living overseas, and we were heading back to America. We had lived in this city for four years, and I had built a relationship with a college student and then a recent college grad named Billy, who four years earlier had asked me when I first got there, he had, I met him through a, an acquaintance, and he had asked me to help him grow in his young Christian faith. Uh, when I met him, he had already been a Christian for a couple years, and he had this desire to grow, but he, he, for some reason, he always felt that his past deemed him unworthy of God's love and forgiveness, even though he knew that Jesus forgave him. Um, common story many of us have felt or feel as, as Christians sometimes, so he's just struggling with this. So we often met to talk about life, to study the Bible. He shared about his past. Growing up in his home, with this seemingly kind dad, yet his dad was an alcoholic. Uh, and when his dad would get really drunk, he would beat his, his mom. And, um, but then his dad would feel bad later when he wasn't drunk. And it was this cycle throughout most of Billy's childhood. My friend's, my buddy's name was Billy. Um, and as Billy got older, he began to stand up for his mom, sometimes even taking the beatings himself. And then sometime around 16, Billy actually started fighting back. To one point, he severely beat his dad. Um, and Billy told me he would cry out to God or whoever out there. He wasn't a Christian. There weren't many Christians where he lived, where he grew up. And he would just cry out, whoever, please help me. Billy grew up in a for, poor farming village, and he was, but he was very intelligent. He got to go to a special high school outside of the village and eventually got to go to college. Not many people from his village went to college. His freshman year of college, he met a Christian classmate who shared the gospel with him. Billy was becoming a new man. The rage and the bitterness he had in his heart began to turn in love into love and peace toward others, even his family. He told me a story about he went back home during a school break and wrote Bible passages about peace and Jesus on the wall of the storage shed outside his family's farmhouse. He actually took me back to his home and showed me that. A couple of months after he'd become a believer, he just felt compelled to write this Bible passage on the wall and like paint. Uh, I'd spent many hours with Billy. He had been in our home countless times. I actually, like I said, got to visit his home and, but Billy continued to struggle with this idea that God would forgive him, particularly forgive him for beating his dad and for hating his dad. That passage where, you know, Jesus really challenges us to love others and love our enemies really was hard. He's like, I don't know if I could love him. And then over time, Billy began to walk in freedom and began to really accept forgive the forgiveness that he had in Jesus and eventually forgave his father. And to be honest, prideful Danny, I'm still prideful, but I was maybe more prideful back then. I'm hoping I'm moving more like Christ in Christ-likeness. I thought it was my wise biblical teaching and my counsel that really 
you know, am I going through various passages of scripture for years that led him to this? And um, he ended up moving to another city and he continued to work for a church in that city. He had a job and he was also doing a lot of service for the kingdom, going on college campuses, loving students, helping students like him. And uh, right before we were leaving, I went back and met with him. And I, I just wanted to know, I just said, so tell me some of the things that I taught you that really stood out. And I thought he was going to talk about our Roman study or our study of the Gospel of Mark. And he said, Danny, to be honest, being around your family is part of the way, I mean, one of the main parts of the way that God transformed me. And I said, what do you mean, Billy? And he said, I didn't think marriage was possible. Even though the, I knew that Christians could be married, I didn't think a good marriage could be possible. And I didn't think that parents could truly discipline their children and love them until I saw you guys do it. And he, he actually brought up accounts where Eric and I had maybe an argument and we reconciled. And he brought up two specific accounts where I disciplined Maggie in love. And he, 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 he literally recalled the account. It was three years, four years earlier. I don't even remember the account, to be honest with you. Um, and it really humbled me. And he, it began to show me that there's something about the family and there's something about the way we, we love each other inside the family and as Christians that is part of the discipleship process and is part of becoming this new creation in Christ. And I tell this story because I feel like this that story brings the essence of what Paul is talking about in this passage that we just read. Our senior pastor Lawrence and his wife Gina recently adopted their son from China. So Pastor Josh this summer has been leading us through this series in Ephesians. And he's out of town this week at a family event. And in the, in the sequence, we're actually should be in Ephesians 5.1. If you notice, we jumped ahead because Pastor Josh wanted to preach on the discipleship the discipleship piece, which is really covered in Ephesians 5, 1 through 20. So he asked if I would jump ahead and peach, preach on this Christian household family piece. Uh, so that's why we're out of order. So any of you following the order might, might be thrown off. It, it's intentional. And uh, I'm going to preach this morning on this passage about Christian households and families. And like the rest of Ephesians, each line of this section is so theologically rich that it could actually warrant its own sermon. There's some famous Reformed pastors who have spent a year in Ephesians, 52, 60 sermons in Ephesians. But this morning, I'm going to do a flyover of the whole section because I want us to get the essence of, what, of just what Christ is teaching. I read over 100 pages of commentary. There's two very controversial passages in this, in this, um, in this, uh, in this section particularly to a modern ear, if you, don't, if you don't know what it really is saying. So the commentators spend extra time. Every commentator, even a little short commentary, has 10, 15 pages talking about what, the phrase submission and the idea of slavery and how, to, how can we really understand that in our modern context and really see what Paul is talking about in light of the gospel. So I read all this stuff and I said, okay, God, I'm going to preach this sermon and what do you want me to do? And I feel like God was saying, just give them an overview of what the passage is about and what it would mean for us to be people who submit to one another and truly want, love one another. So I'm going to do four things this morning. I'm going to summarize how we got to this point in Ephesians. 
I'm going to give you a very broad exegetical overview of the text. And broad exegetical overview is just a seminary way of saying, I'm going to help you understand it in its original context and what it means for us today. So please don't freak out by that term. I want to acknowledge that the two, sta the two statements in this text have been grossly misused by people in the past and unfortunately even in the present to justify sinful and unbiblical actions. I want to acknowledge that and give us one way to process that as a church and how, to, how can we as a body deal with that. And then finally, I want to show five ways we can apply the teaching from this passage directly to our lives now. So you ready? All right, let's go. All right, summarize how we got here. Did everybody get one of these little pieces of paper? I'm the handout guy, so I obviously had a handout. So if you didn't get one, here's some. Can somebody... And the welcome team will have more in the back, too. So this is just a summary of Ephesians from Professor Tay Lee Lau of Trinity uh, Seminary. And La Professor Lau says, Ephesians presents a cosmic Christ. Christ brings all his glory, all history to completion. He is seated at the right hand of God. He exalted, he's exalted above all spiritual powers. He is the authoritative head over everything. He possesses boundless riches, and he freely gives, which he freely gives to the church. So this is kind of the summary of Ephesians. And if you look at the first part, uh, this is this is a chart uh, outlined from D. A. Carson and and uh, Tay Lee Lau. I hope I'm not butchering his name. Two professors at Trinity uh, Seminary. And the first part they say is the calling of Christ with, the calling of the church within Christ's uh, cosmic reconciliation. And uh, that comes from directly from the passage in, in chapter 1, verse 10, that Jesus is bringing all of history. He's reconciling everything. And where does the church fit into that? And then you can look at these subheadings. And this is kind of what we've been preaching on and what we've been looking at each week. And then we get to uh, where Pastor Josh preached about last week, which is unity and maturity, this community aspect in the body. And then next week, if you look at Roman numeral three, point B, it says instructions for Christian living. Pastor Josh is going to talk more about that and, and what that means in discipleship. And then if you look at section C, it says instructions for Christians' households. And that's, that's where we are today. So I just wanted to, I don't have a lot of time, but I just wanted you to kind of see where we are in the timeline of Ephesians and what Paul is trying to do. Because I think if you just read this passage in isolation, you're not getting the essence of, of all the words and, and the wisdom that Paul's trying to give us as he's teaching us, this is who we are in Christ, and this is who we are as a church. And we, and we can act this way, not because it's easy, or not because you know, we feel like it a lot of times, but we can do this because of what Christ has done for us. And Christ is moving in us and through us as a body, as a church, so that we can, as individuals and as a body, go out and actually live this out. So that's, that's the first part. I just wanted to, you to see how we got to where we are in Ephesians. Uh, the second part is just let's, let's just do a broad exegetical overview of this text. Let's go for it. All right. So I had Erica read uh, starting in chapter 5, verse 8. I wanted us to hear the part right before it so we could hear how we get to this, what's called the instructions for Christian households. And if you, starting in verse 15, it says, Be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. 
Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So, I talked about, Pastor Josh has mentioned probably five times that Paul uses a lot of run-on sentences. That he, he keeps, he does these throughout Ephesians. And this is another one of those. This clause where it says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, what would it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to speak to one another with psalms and hymns. You're going to sing songs. You're going to give thanks to God the Father. And you're going to submit to one another for reverence for Christ. So in English, it's a little choppy. So it, it seems like maybe the submit to one another, is this part of the household? Or is this part of the, the other part? Actually, it's connecting the two together. The word submit in, uh, where it's in verse 22, where it's in our English translation, even the ESV, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. The, the verb submit isn't even there. They're just implying the verb from the previous, the previous uh, what we would call verse 21. So the idea is this is one flowing thing. People who are filled with the Holy Spirit can do these things. It doesn't mean we do them perfectly. It doesn't mean we always do them. It means this is the goal. We can actually sing songs. We can actually love each other. We can actually have a grateful, thankful heart. We can, we can actually do this. And that's, that's where, where Paul is bringing us to in this. So this spirit-filled person, this spirit-filled couple can do these things. So in this sermon, I'm going to refer to Tim Keller a lot. And I do that for a couple reasons. One is I really feel like God gave him, about 20 years ago, he did a nine-sermon series on Sunday nights when his church was small. It's a big church now, but when it was small, on Ephesians and marriage. It actually, that sermon series became a book called The Meaning of Marriage, which is probably one of the most significant Christian books, I would argue, written in the last 50 years. Maybe on par with mere Christianity in its, in its significance. And I believe that God gave Tim Keller a special gift in a special time to say, what, is, what does marriage mean for us right now as Christians in our context? So I'm going to say it. I'm going to quote him a lot. I'm going to say, read that book. I can't cover all this stuff. He did. God gave him a special gift and many, many sermons, and they put all those sermons into a book. So if you have never read that book, I would challenge all of you to read it, even if you're single, because it's, it's, it's just doctrine of the church that for today. God used him as a prophet to help us today. So, so we get to this passage, and it talks about we must be filled with the Spirit. It, there's a parallel passage. If you read Colossians 3, Paul says almost the same thing. He says, wives, submit to your husbands. You know, children, uh, obey your parents. It's a little different wording, but it's almost the same thing. But Paul doesn't say be filled with the Spirit before that. In, in that passage, he, he says... Um, the person transformed by the gospel who lives as someone made alive in Christ will do these things. So if we put the two together, if you're transformed by the gospel, if you're made alive in Christ, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and by filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm just going to, the easiest way I've ever heard to describe it is it means you're directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're yielding not to your flesh, not to the world, but you are yielding to the Holy Spirit. You are asking the Spirit to fill you each day so that you are guided and directed by the Spirit. So if you take the Colossians 3 passage and then you take the Ephesians 5 and 6 passage and you put them together, you see this person who is, who is transformed by the gospel, who understands the new creation they are in Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit of God can begin to do these things. How does it start off? It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
And then it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Famous passage, you know, this is quoted outside of the church to kind of make fun of the church. This is actually a passage. Look how archaic the Bible is. These Christians, can you believe them? What, a, what, a, what an archaic way of viewing marriage. And it says, then it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as, with, as the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And it, and it goes on, and then it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then it ends with this. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So let's unpack this a little bit. And again, I recognize that this comes across as archaic. Some people think this might be oppressive or strange to a modern listener, especially in a world where marriage is consistently being redefined. I mean, literally... People are saying we need to make a new definition of marriage. That is a thought out there in our culture right now. But I want to proclaim, if, I want to say, if, if, if we really read and see how clearly this passage proclaims the teaching of this new kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating and his new way of reordering everything, including marriage, we'll, we'll begin to understand how powerful this is and how life-changing this is and how, what a gift this is to us as the church of Jesus Christ. Again, I don't have time this morning. I'm gonna tell you to read the meaning of marriage probably six times during this sermon. Maybe seven, because that's a biblical number, right? Seven times, I'll tell you. So I think I'm on like four. All right. Keller brings up this idea that historically marriage had two channels. He calls it the dynastic view of marriage, which means that you get married for a legacy or like a dynasty. He says, in this view of marriage, the purpose of marriage is to fulfill social functions, social duties. You choose your spouse to get to the place you want to be, the position economically and socially, to have a family. This is how most cultures function throughout all history. Even if you watch like those, what are they, Jane Austen movies or whatever, they, they have some romanticism, but they're also, Erica, my wife and my daughter, they watch a lot of these things. They're also trying to find the rich guy or whatever. You don't want to marry the poor guy. It's funny, the pastor is always the poor guy. And, the, uh, and those things. So thank you, Erica, for marrying the poor guy. But, um, but even in post-Enlightenment Europe, which invented the other view, the romantic view, there is still this, like, marriage has this function of it helps me socially. I didn't know this, but as the, the wedding of, um, who were the two royal people who just got married? Harry and Meghan, right? When the, I looked at the genealogy of their family, and they got, like, Russian... Like 150 years ago, like a Russian king married a, and a Greek. So they have like a Greek cousin and a Russian cousin. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Then I started looking at all of Europe, like even where my family's from in southern Italy, like they made alliances with like Norman, the Normans with different people. Like throughout even European history, people were making all kinds of alliances. Actually, that's kind of Solomon's downfall is him using marriage to make these political alliances. So whether you're rich or poor, this dynastic view of marriage had always been one of the ways in the meanings of marriage, why people got married. Then Keller brings up, since the Enlightenment, another view came in, and that was the romantic ideal. And that's probably more the error that we're in right now, that marriage is to fulfill my desires and dreams. The problem with this is when it breaks down, you just move on. You don't, when you don't feel it anymore, you move on. And Keller would bring up, and he brings this up in the meaning of marriage, I think that's my fifth time, sixth time saying that, um, he, he brings it up and he's, he says that both these views have some elements of the truth, but they're, they're not what God intended marriage to be. 
Um, and he says, the perfect of marriage is to say, I see something glorious uh, God is doing in you. I believe that I'm both attracted and called to enable that process to work with Jesus Christ in the process. And that's where I want to go and that's what I want to do. He says, the purpose of marriage is to serve your spouse with a vision for his or her future glory. There's something about building each other up and pointing each other toward Christ. So Jesus isn't saying you get married and Paul's not enforcing just for the dynasty element of it, to build this, this dynasty here on earth. Because again, Jesus tells us, don't store up treasure on earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Store up treasure in heaven where, you know, where moth and rust don't destroy. So we can't go that way. Then with the romantic ideal, we can't embrace either, that Jesus just wants us to feel good, and that's the only reason, what can I get out of it? How do I feel? Both of these are, are selfish. And Keller points out that the, the biblical meaning of marriage is selfless. That's why it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's why it says, submit to one another. It doesn't start off saying, you know, wives, you have to do this. It says, all Christians should be submitting to one another. We should all submit to one another. When Paul, when Paul gives us that clause, he's saying these are some examples of how that works in the household, because the household is very important. But he's saying that all of us are submit to, submitting to each other. So this is what Paul is trying to do, and he's, he's bringing us to this new kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, this reconciliation process, and it can happen in marriage. Now this was the original intent for marriage in the garden, they were to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy each other and build. So actually, the dynasty element and the romantic element, I believe God can give to us. But I don't think they're instant and I don't think they're the goal. But it, Jesus does say, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and I'll give you the, these things. So I don't think it's bad to want romance in marriage. I don't think it's bad to want to build a family and, and do things. But what, what's the end goal of that? Is it for our selfish needs or to build the kingdom of God? God saved us. God loved us. Can we love others? So it's just taking the ideas that the world has and saying, yeah, there's some good parts of that, but they're missing the essence of why God created marriage. And Paul's trying to reorder it. Actually, we, modern people look at Ephesians 5 and, and 6 and, and Colossians 3 and say, oh, it's so archaic, but it was radical for the time and it's radical now. And that's what I want to kind of show you today. So, in a gospel-centered, spirit-led marriage, the wife should yield headship to the husband. And I wish I had time to flesh this out. And actually, at Waypoint, I've been here for two years at Waypoint, and we've had two marriage seminars. We spent two weekends over the past two years where we watched videos and we listened to teaching from wise pastors and leaders around the country, and, and men and women, couples, and to flesh this out, what does this mean? Keller actually says, the Bible tells us kind of the principle, but it doesn't tell us how to flesh it out. And one thing I, as I work with internationals a lot, I, I love the beauty of the gospel is, is when the gospel penetrates a culture, you have to work it out within your own cultural context. And we're gonna look at that even when, when Paul addresses slave, slaves later, what that meant in their original cultural context and what that means for us today. But I think that the essence of this is that this teaching of marriage, that we, we just have to flesh it out, and I can't just give you a magic answer right here today. I'd love to wave the wand and just say, okay guys, I'm gonna give you what it means, how this works its way out in your marriage. 
And I know some of you might have been heard, oh, good, we're, it's a sermon on marriage today. So da- Pastor Danny's going to give us what we need to hear. And unfortunately, all I'm going to do is point you to that you need to submit to one another and that it's, it's going to be hard and you're going to flush it out. And it's, it's going to be a long process of learning to love another person and trust that person and them love you. And, and th- so Paul's just giving us the ideal and, and the direction to head in and the person where to look to, Jesus Christ. But he's not giving us the exact details. And I'm, in a way, I'm kind of glad he's not. Because then how could the gospel penetrate all these different cultures if it says you got to do this, you got to do that? Because as the gospel goes to the cultures and the Spirit leads the local church there, they begin to see this is how we can really do what God's called us to do. So if you need more help with this or guidance with this, the pastors are here. The elders are here. The elders' wives are here. Uh, We're here to serve you in this. Marriage is not easy. And this, how a marriage fleshes itself out and what it means to have a biblical marriage, we're here to help you in that. We actually own the rights to one of the, the Family Life tapes. We can even do another one for those who missed it. You know, you can, you can come on a Saturday morning and we can give you that material. We want to help you understand this. I wish today's sermon I could wave the wand, you guys walk away, and you know how to live the next 30 years of your marriage. But that, that's not going to happen. But what is going to happen is you're going to walk away today, I hope, being encouraged that as we submit to one each other, one another, God is going to work in us and through us. One last comment on submission is it's not machoism. It's not the man dominates and the woman doesn't, and the woman has to submit. That's not what this is at all. If you read the whole section about what the man's requirements are to be like Jesus, um, this passage has been distorted and used negatively to, for all kinds of sinful actions. And I'm here to tell you today that this, this passage means that we are to love each other. And if you want to know the essence of what this passage is, I would challenge everyone to not only read but memorize Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, where it talks about the humility of Christ and how we're supposed to have that humility toward each other. I would say that's the essence of Paul's definition of what it means to submit to one another. Paul doesn't write his letters in isolation. He is... God is transforming his heart. He was the Pharisee who killed people and who wanted to destroy the Christian faith. And God grabbed him and said, this is the good news that you need, Paul. And as it's transforming him, he's sending these letters out. And he sends Ephesians out to the church in Ephesus. And he sends Colossians out to the church in Colossae. And he sends Philippians out to the church in Philippi. And, and he gives them this encouragement. So the last thing on submission is... The word actually has some military roots, and it can be a wartime word. And it means, and if you think about America during World War II, uh, I wasn't here, my grandparents were, and they actually talk, they talk a lot about it. Uh, when I was young, they would share about World War II. And America was, everybody in America was kind of submitting to each other. Rich people were not buying products that use metal, even though they could afford it, because they were submitting to the good, the goal to defeat the enemy. America was under attack and everyone had to submit to each other. And they had to submit publicly, but they also had to submit secretly and privately. Like, yeah, you could say, well, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna take advantage of, you know, using these metals or doing this thing, but you could do it when no one's looking. But the goal of what was going on was there was this common enemy and everyone in America agreed that we need to submit to each other. In, during that time. Now, was there a lot of 
problems with that. Yes, there's the Japanese internment camps. Yes, African-Americans were treated harshly even during that time when we were supposed to be submitting together. So I'm not saying that's a perfect example. I'm just saying that's the essence. As Christians, we have a common enemy. And in two weeks, Pastor Lawrence is going to actually show us the last part of Ephesians where it talks about our enemy and it talks about the, the armor that God gives us. And if we have this common enemy and we understand what submission looks like, what it means to work together, to love each other, but we don't fight that enemy with weapons of the world. We fight that enemy with love and we fight that enemy with the truth of the gospel. So, so this, is the, this is where I want to go with submission. Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in relationships in the church, I want us to begin to think not that submission is a bad thing, but it's a way to honor one another. And I want Philippians 2, 1 through 11 to be our rallying cry behind this. And I want that to be true for me too. And I want to do these things not just because you guys look at me and it makes, well, he's the pastor. I want to, I want to make, it makes me feel good that you guys think I'm a good Christian, but I want to do these things because they're the right thing to do because God loved me and God is reconciling the world and he is working through me. And, and through this process, as I'm submitting to all of you and we're submitting together, we can really transform the world for Jesus Christ. Uh, parenting. Children, obey your parents. I would love to t give a whole sermon on this. We're actually having a parenting seminar in the fall. So that's my plug for that. If you can't make it because you're out of town that week, we'll find a way for you to get the material at another time. If your small group's struggling with parenting, if you're personally struggling with parenting, come to a pastor, come to an elder, come to an elder's wife, come to your small group leader. Let us know. We want to help you. Parenting is very difficult. This passage just gives us one little thing saying, you know, children obey your parents, fathers and mothers don't exasperate. And exasperate, I looked it up, means to irritate intensive, intensively. So don't irritate intensively your children. Instead, bring them up in the training of the Lord. And, and we have a children's ministry, but the children's ministry isn't the primary place where your children are going to get their instruction. They're going to get their instruction from you in your home. Now, I know you're like, oh, great. Thanks for putting all that pressure on me. But I didn't put the pressure on you. Jesus did. But guess what? His Spirit's with you, and He's going to help you do it. You don't have to do it. You have to yield to Him, and He'll do it in you and through you. And then if you don't have kids, let's say you're single or you're an empty nester, you don't have kids here at Waypoint, you're still part of the process. We need you. We either need you to help us literally watch the kids, plug for children's ministry and youth ministry. We need volunteers. Please, if you love youth... If you love preteens or you love children, we do need more volunteers. Our children's ministry and youth and preteen ministry are growing. But we need you to help actually directly with the kids, but we also need you to encourage the parents to walk alongside them as they raise children. So that's all I'm going to say on parenting. You guys can get the essence of what this passage means. Uh, and then when we end the parenting seminar, we'll go deeper into this. The final section on slaves and masters. Um... This very passage, this is, I, I don't even like saying this out loud. Right here where we live, like in this city, in this county, in cities all around us, people use this passage to justify slavery. This is the most, it's, it's disgusting. They twisted the scripture to push their agenda, their sinful agenda. And I, I wasn't even part of it. My ancestors actually didn't come to America until about the 1880s, but I, I I just want to say, forgive us, God, because I'm part of a denomination, I'm part of a church that, that allowed this to happen. 
pastors in our denomination stood on pulpits and let this happen. And I, I just pray when later on in the passage where it says, you know, expose, or early in the passage, expose the deeds of darkness, that thank God that someone exposed this and that this passage will never again be used for darkness, I hope. Um, so I'm going to read something from N.T. Wright, a famous um, new... T he's probably the top Paul scholar in the whole world. He studied Paul more hours than probably anybody living. And here's what he said. Did Paul believe that slavery was a good thing? And what do we make of it all today? He says, the answer is that Paul could no more envision a world without slavery than we can envision a world without electricity. Most of the modern world takes for granted televisions, computers, and a million lesser innovations, inventions that they're impossible without electricity. And yet, for most of human history, electricity was completely unknown. And yet, for most of human history, I'm sorry, in the same way, Paul's world worked through slavery as a vital place in almost every household except the very poor. So Paul is no way endorsing slavery. He's just acknowledging the reality of it. And if you, if you have an ESV, it, it, it'll translate this bond servant. It's a tough word to translate. Um, and, and I've used this example before, but you guys, some of you may have seen episode one of Star Wars, the one that a lot of people don't like. Like Anakin, his mom's in slavery because she owed a debt. Most people were in slavery because of war. Like one country conquered another country, they got a bunch of captives, they put the people in slavery, or because they owed money. Um, so ancient, there was a way out. Even in the Old Testament, when God gives the law to Moses, everyone can get out. You can, you, after, and then there's even the Jubilee year, where you don't, even if you didn't pay the money to get the debt, you're supposed to release the slave. So the transatlantic slavery and the slavery that happened in America was blatantly sinful and wrong. And it... it it, it was, yes, it was linked to this, but it wasn't the same thing. The people who were doing this here knew that they were wrong. There were Christians speaking out against them, and they chose not to listen. I'm actually going to put two articles on the city by one of my brothers in Christ, an African-American brother, who will give you a good perspective on, the, on how this happened and hopefully point us to never letting something like this happen again in the church. So... That's all I want to say about this passage is, in, in its original context, Paul was just acknowledging this bondservant idea and what it would mean if you're the bondservant, you're the slave, and you're a Christian, how should you act? And if you're the master of the house. And again, this is rules for Christian households. If you notice, Paul doesn't cover every part of the household. He doesn't talk about mother-in-laws or, you know, he doesn't talk about, which I would love to hear what Paul has to say about that. Uh, <laughs> He doesn't talk about, like, widows, you know, because there's how to take care of people. He just kind of focuses on a few things. Maybe because that's what, these were Greco-Roman cities. Even though there was some Jews in the church, some people from a Hebrew background, they were functioning in this Greco-Roman style. So maybe he was addressing their need. He wasn't addressing all family structures, all different types of families. He was just addressing things that were important to them. But... I'll, I'll talk about this later in the application points, but the best parallel to this for us today is if, if you change the word slave to worker and you change the word master to boss. Some of you are bosses. Are you Christ-like in the way you love your employees? Actually, I would argue that I grew up in my lifetime, pastors let their congregants who own small businesses mistreat their employees and didn't stand up to them. 
I actually saw it with my own eyes because many of those people in small businesses gave a lot of money to the church. And the pastor never spoke into that small business owner about the injustice that they did toward their workers. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. I was only a teenager, and I saw it multiple times. And the pastor was so afraid of losing that tithe money. I don't know what was going through that heart. I don't want to judge everybody. I just want to say that it was, it was actually a sin that I saw committed in my lifetime. So when we apply this to us today, I could definitely say, if you're an employee, do work, you work for God. So do good even when the boss isn't watching. And if you're a boss, be like Christ to those employers. I'm not saying you got to give everybody $80,000 a year if they're a janitor and then the company goes bankrupt because you don't have any money. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about what would it mean for you to really follow this? Each situation is differently, so there's no like across-the-board answer. About these statements, the one about submission and the one about slavery. I mean, literally, you can go on the Huffington Post or other websites right now and see people saying, this is why I don't believe in Christianity, because they believe this. We have a defense against this. They're right. We don't believe their version of it, even though some Christians or some people claiming Christ might be saying that. And I want to give you two places to go. Go to these websites awesome. often. They are awesome. Maybe that was a Freudian slip. One's called the Gospel Coalition. This is a more recent website. It's just a collection of essays from pastors and theologians um, addressing a lot of different topics. They almost write stuff every day about what's going on in the world. The second one is called Christianity Today. And it does have a pay firewall. I would say get a, get a paper subscription to Christianity Today. It's like 20 bucks a year, and then you get all the access online. These two websites, you can search any topic. Ephesians view of slavery and what it means for us today. You can find an article where somebody, God has given that person the gift and the time to really evaluate that text and give us insight into it. So I would say use those tools as a resource and then use us as your pastors to help you process this stuff. If you're struggling with something, send me the article that you're struggling with. Send me and say, Danny, I, I this, this irks me wrong. Don't immediately just post it on Facebook and write some rant. Like, think about it first. Like, think about the bigger picture of the gospel and stuff, and let us help you process it. Then maybe you should post it on Facebook as a rant. But just be careful, because there's a lot of noise out there, and we as Christians want to be really thoughtful in how we approach this. And finally, I just want to point out this verse. It says, has nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And I am so thankful that brothers and sisters have exposed them in the past, like the slavery stuff, like the civil rights stuff. And I pray that we continue to be people who expose the deeds of darkness and point, people to, point our brothers and sisters toward the light of Christ. But then when they, when they accept it, we need to forgive them and bring them back in. It's, it's complicated, but we can do this because God has called us to this. All right, five ways we can apply this teaching to our lives. First one, look to Jesus who's reconciling everything. Go back and read Ephesians 1. Jesus is reconciling everything to himself. He inaugurated his kingdom. You know, John the Baptist looks at him and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Like it's here. It's, it's inaugurated. It's started. Look to Jesus. Submit to one another. I've said so much about it during the sermon. I'm not going to say anything here. I'm just going to tell you, we got to submit to each other. We got to love each other. We've got to trust each other. 
We've got to point it. Submitting doesn't always mean um, letting the other person walk over you. Actually, the good, the loving thing might be to do is say, hey man, you're walking all over us and you need to look to Christ and follow Him, not submit to your own flesh. If, if someone's submitting to one another as they're seeking the Holy Spirit, not submitting to someone who's in their sinful actions. I, I want to make that clear. But we can be the body of Christ and we can do this. Submit to one another. And what's our motivation? Out of reverence for Christ. Out of reverence for Christ. Because we know that God is better and His way is better. The third one, remember, the family has a special place in God's redemptive plan. And before I move on, I have to mention this. That singleness also has a special place in God's redemptive plan. And whether it's singleness for a season or for a lifetime. Paul actually spends a whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, and there's other places in the New Testament talking about singleness and the gift of singleness. So if you're single, I don't want you to walk away being like, wow, i got to get married to be part of God's redemptive plan. Actually, that couldn't be further from the truth. God can use singleness. God can use marriage. God can use widows. Uh, he can use divorce, even divorce, even the worst problems you could ever imagine. God can use and rec- as he's reconciling all things back to himself. So let's trust him in that. But I, I just want to acknowledge those for those of you who are single, that singleness is a gift. And I'm going to post a great article from the Gospel Coalition about the gift of singleness. Um, and then I want to put this diagram up. This may not be perfect, and if you're a theologian, you probably can break this thing down. But, and I didn't pick blue and red because of Democrats and Republicans. I just thought, of, I, just, I just wanted to do blue and red and then purple. The top's supposed to be purple. So some way, the mystery is, you have two people who are coming into the marriage with their own personalities and their own brokenness and all this stuff, and the goal is to be like Christ. So as you grow closer to Christ, you're going to grow closer together. So this isn't a perfect illustration, but I, it helps me think about how I should view my, my marriage. As I grow closer to, to Christ, the goal is not to stay, for me to stay blue. The goal is for me to turn purple. And Erica is going to help me do that. God put us together. And then also you could even, the same diagram could be you and the church. You and your friends in the church. You're growing each other toward Christ. Now, you may be more mature, and they're less mature, so their triangle might be smaller, and you're helping them, their triangle grow. But the ultimate grow, goal is we're all becoming like Jesus. That's our goal. We want to be more like Him. Are we going to fail? Are we going to mess up? Yes, but that's our goal. Next slide. So I did this one. I had no idea how to do this, so this is what I visioned. This ch- children are kind of part of the parents, so they're a little small triangle, and we're raising them up to be like Christ. But they have their own personalities. They have, they're not us. They're not going to be exactly like us. Their childhood won't be, even if we try to recreate our own childhood in them, they're not us. But God has called us to point them to Christ. A lot of the kids out there are like, amen, listen to that, parents. Like, you know. But we can do this. This is part of the discipleship process that we are called to bring our children toward Christ. Work relationships. Be mindful of work relationships. I mentioned this earlier. Whether you're a worker or a boss, be mindful of it, surrender it to Christ, trust Him. I, I made another diagram, you know, just the same thing. Now, if your boss isn't a believer, it's not going to look like that. This is two Christians working together. It's, it's going to flesh its way out differently, but we know what we're called to do. You know the essence of what Paul's trying to teach us there. Let's, let's try to do that. Let's see what happens when we as Christians really try to live, live this out. And then finally, we have one master 
He has no favorites. This passage started with being filled with the Spirit, singing psalms, thanking God, loving one another, submitting to one another, and it ends with the, the clause that we have one master. We serve one God. Let's submit to each other as we reflect Jesus Christ, our master and our savior. Let's pray. God, you are good. Well, this passage is so theologically deep, often misunderstood, but so important for us to understand. I pray as each person in here reflects on it, as I go back and reflect on it, God, that you just continue to teach us through your word, that we would be people who are part of your church, part of this reconciliation process. We would say, God, you reconciled me. You brought me out of darkness into light and that we could be children of light that bring light to others. God, we give you all the praise and glory. I pray that we would submit to one another, that we would love each other as husbands and wives. We would love our children, our children, we would raise them up in the way of, of you. That in work relationships, we would trust you. And I pray that when times, when the church is not following you, that we would expose the deeds of darkness. God, you are faithful, you are good. We praise you, and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name.